0: You're listening to The Peace Corner with a group of young, peace-hungry interns at GPAC, the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict. In a world riddled with violent conflict, peace can feel elusive and peacebuilding can sound abstract. We want to change that with The Peace Corner. Who are the people breaking away from the discourses of hate and violence and transforming the status quo? What personally drives these people to peacebuilding? There are many stories of peace some which inspire us, fill us with hope and others which make us hungry for change. Each podcast we talk to a different peace builder about their own personal experience in the field, from Nicaragua to Palestine and beyond. This is a chance to hear from the people putting themselves on the line for peace, the people who remain steadfast in their pursuit of more peaceful societies and who incidentally are delightful to talk to. So nestle into a corner and listen to the voices making peace possible. Welcome, lovely listeners to a special edition of the Peace Corner. Today I'm joined by three veteran peace builders for a roundtable discussion to explore how peace builders navigate polarizing and negative discourse in practice, particularly in dialogue processes. First, we have Mark, who's working at the Philippines-based advocacy institution, Initiatives for International Dialogue, which promotes human security, democratization, and people-to-people solidarity. Welcome, Mark.
1: Hi, welcome as
0: well. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Second, we have Mary, who's working at Peaceboat based in Japan with specific focus on citizen level dialogue around nuclear disarmament, territorial dispute and historical awareness in the region. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. And lastly, we have Darren Nel, GPAC's executive director, who has been an international affairs and policy advisor and has been especially involved in the Colombian peace process. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks, Charlotte. They share over 40 years of combined experience and possess particular insights into dialogue efforts in their respective regions. So before we get started, do you remember when you all first met?
2: I think I met Mary in 2009, probably, in the Philippines.
3: That's right, yes. I think when Mark's organization was hosting the international meeting of GPAC would have been our first time to meet. Yeah
1: and I'm the younger kid on the block, basically. <laughs> I think I met Darinel four years ago in the International Steering Group meeting here in The Hague, while Mary, I think, three years ago in South Thailand. That sounds
3: right, yes.
0: Mm. And so that we can get an idea of what you're each working on at the moment, um,
3: why don't we start with you, Mary? Uh, in terms of dialogue, what what's your focus at the moment? Sure. In GPAC Northeast Asia, at the moment, as our priority, we are working on what we're calling the Ulaanbaatar process, mm-hmm. uh, which is bringing together different civil society actors uh, from throughout Northeast Asia, but with a uh, specific focus on people from both North and South Korea. So trying to create a space for dialogue amongst the emerging peace process in the region now.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Great. And Mark?
1: Yeah. Um, my organization, the Initiatives for International Dialogue, uh, works with the ASEAN or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations on um, advocacy on peace building and conflict prevention. But uh, we also work on several areas in the region such as Myanmar and South Thailand. But in our home base, uh, we are based in Davao in southern Philippines. We work on two peace processes, Mm -hmm. the peace process on the Bangsamoro and then the peace processes with the... National Democratic Front of the Philippines.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, and Darnell.
1: Well, as GPAC
2: executive director, I sort of have my fingers put in different uh, processes. So I am, uh, in a way, supporting the Northeast Asia Dulanbatar process that Mary was referring to. Also, I try to accompany inter- initiatives or international dialogue whenever they um, seek it. No, think that it's good to have a GPAC presence in their in their. Um, dialogue efforts and also you know in the past capacities in gpac i, I say i've been supporting or, or leading on dialogue processes not necessarily uh, geographically but more with different actors for example mm. dialogue processes with policy at the un or with uh, uh, trying to create venues for civil society to engage with regional international organizations and besides that currently i'm also uh, or have been engaged recently in the dialogue project a dialogue process that is taking place in Colombia around what they call intergenerational dialogues mm-hmm. for essentially bringing the perspectives of the youth but also the eldest and into rethinking what their life after the 50 year conflict that Colombia has been living can mm-hmm. look like you know, and looking forward into what their towns or how do they see their towns some years from now and how they can contribute to building that vision.
0: Mm. Interesting. And um, so how much scope would you say there is for civil society to participate in these dialogue processes? I mean, it will be different in each region, but it'd be interesting to hear.
3: I think our case in Northeast Asia, um, especially when we first began, is there was close to zero space actually available. Mm. Um, Very much these issues related to peace and security and, of course, the nuclear issue are very much seen as the space only for state actors. Um, There are also many different, for example, even laws in place which prevent citizens from these different countries to even be in the same room together. Uh, Therefore, when we first started with the Ulaanbaatar process and indeed with the GPAC work in the region, um, a real priority was even just creating the opportunity for civil society actors to come together to start to build enough trust together to have discussion on these topics. In the last year, finally, uh, in regards to the Korean Peninsula, we have seen some positive progress, um, which for many years was really not the case at all. Mm. So we are starting to see there is a little bit more space available um, within some interaction with those who are involved in official processes, but also even in conversations, whether it's with the UN or with other organizations who are starting to engage in what is happening in the Korean Peninsula. So we really went from having no opportunity for civil society to engage in these different issues to the fact that having been persistent and having been consistently Mm -hmm. even just coming together and starting to have these channels of communication has meant that we're starting to learn or figure out how to use some of the space which is finally coming open. But it's still very, very new days yet Mm -hmm. in the region. Mm -hmm. And how does that relate to the context
0: you're working in, Mark?
1: Yeah, um, in the Philippines, I think it's not unique with our work in Mindanao or in the Mm. Philippines. For engagement of civil society with peace processes, usually um, the peace processes or the the peace talks are usually thought to be or perceived to be as talks between those two formal parties, two sides of the conflict. And for third parties or independent civil society organizations usually they are perceived to be outsiders in fact um, and that's always a challenge even up till now. Um, so um, it's all, there's two frameworks on how to deal with that. It's either you um, say that you, you need to engage the formal processes and, and assert that you need civil society and people's voices on those tables but at the same time in the past several years we've I think we've learned that participation isn't just being formally recognized in those formal spaces. It's great to have those formal recognition on those high tables. But at the same time, if you're sincere in, in peace-building work, then you create your own spaces. And that's, mm. that's the strength of people's organizations and civil society um, organizations. You build your organizations and your networks and assert and create your own spaces, basically, which Ultimately, the talks in the high t- tables are founded on mm. that um, legitimacy that comes from the publics that um, that the parties claim to represent in those tables
2: mm. mm-hmm. now, I, th- I think this is Marcus touching a very interesting point and it's the fact that nobody's going to give you space no, because these are Consider as uh, state processes or usually very close processes in general Mm. So the strength of civil society is to be able to create their own spaces and to create spaces which are Attractive enough that actually engage uh, Other actors so rather than waiting to be convened and be called Civil society often becomes a convener of these of these dialogues. and you can see that in the case of Northeast Asia You can see that in the Philippines even in the, the case that I was mentioning before Around a dialogue process with, you know, civil society with the uh, regional organizations. There's no evidence that 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 this has to take place. You know, usually there is, there are there are some of these formal spaces that the regional organizations have, uh, you know, ECOSOC or during the annual general assemblies, where usually civil society get like five minutes to speak, and then you have a collection of you know environmentalists. Uh, um, uh, human rights groups uh, LGTBI etc and there's really not not much space for a real dialogue on mm. on on, on no, deep dialogue on, on the issues uh, and a way to deal with that or at least the way that we have been doing is to create a fora and we convened that fora and we created space that, that was attractive enough that many organizations say oh I don't want to be left out of this and they actually attend and engage with us, and that helps us to create spaces uh, at the global level as GPAC, but also with our members at the regional level. So I think that that point of uh, being able to to really create the space for your civil society participation and to engage other actors and to act proactively as the convener, it's it's something that uh, uh, that civil society groups really have to think about how to do and and and, and that's uh, something that I think we have developed some good expertise here with different uh, peace builders from the network.
3: Mm. Yeah, I think the really important thing about being able to create your own space as civil society also is that that's even possible in the case where there is no dialogue happening on the governmental level at all. Yeah. That's something we really experienced in Northeast Asia where For many years, the the only multilateral dialogue, which was the six-party talks, had been completely stalled, completely frozen, there was absolutely nothing happening on these kind of official levels. However, civil society was able to step into that space and say, well, even if there is no government dialogue at the moment, we as people living in the region who are affected day by day by what is happening can start to at least create this kind of environment which can then encourage... um, development or ah. progress on the official levels as well. So not only waiting for the space to be open to interact with the official processes, but even to ah. look at what we can do as civil society when there is a complete freeze in terms of what's going on there as well is something very unique to to the work of GPAC. In
2: fact, in these cases, actually, it is some governments who then approach us and say, can you <laughs> Open up your space, the space that you have created for us, you know. Because mm-hmm. uh, as Mary said, you know, there are often these official relations or official dialogue uh, spaces are closed, and they find an opportunity in those spaces that uh, organizations like, uh, um, like the case in Northeast Asia or in Southeast Asia, have created, and say, well, if you have that access, now can we, you know, use that also, or can you at least uh, convey a message or something mm-hmm. so? So I think that's an interesting uh, dynamic no? and an interesting role that civil society can play—not competing with the official spaces, but but creating uh, more spaces uh, uh, and complementing those at the official level.
0: So these closed space closed spaces tend to be—they um, uh, tend to emanate very negative discourse, divisive discourse. Um, and so what are some of the challenges in bringing different groups to engage in the dialogue, especially those who are portrayed uh, negatively, even sometimes threaten it in a threatening way? Um, and also, what role does trust play? Because, yeah, I mean, trust is kind of central to yeah, the process. So. Mm. Yeah, I
1: think uh, two fundamental issues, uh, problems, challenges in bringing people together. Um, The first one is you have to convince or at least those parties, even the parties themselves need to be at that material condition wherein they are themselves persuaded or convinced that there's that peace building, the peaceful way, dialogue is effective or is more effective than the existing or those things the the more the violent means that they've been trying for so long and secondly is if you are the facilitator or the accompanier then you have to build trust among you as um, a perceived to be external actor even if which is also contested of course you as an external actor or internal actor but anyways you have to convince them um, that you are um, here for a Common agenda as mm. theirs, which is find a uh, resolution or transform the conflict um, and build that that trust. And in as any as in in the very uh, peace building or conflict transformation um, definition of of what security is, it's about relationship. It's about building that trust. And so without that, it's really difficult to pull people together in the same room even, or in the same um, page to talk about certain things. without trust among each other and trust to the parties that are accompanying the process.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: No, yeah, I think uh, that um, that is key because we, the departure point is, is not uh, that trust doesn't exist, is mm-hmm. that actually there's a lot of mistrust <laughs> that mm-hmm. exists. So you actually come from minus something to, to begin working on that and and first um, I think the creation of safe space you no know, for for conversation is like the key the, one of the first steps you no know? so you have to have the parties that you convene feel comfortable and feel in that they are in non threatening uh, space and then nothing that they would say would you no know, far back uh, at them and uh, and and then you start a very slow process of uh, simply getting together talking about Anything mm-hmm. but what you, mm-hmm. but no, what you know—it's the elephant in the room. But you go around the bushes, and because it's a process about trust building, you cannot start. No, I mean, in the case of Northeast Asia and the Tar dialogue, uh, you could not never start that with oh, let's discuss about the nuclear, the nuclearization issue, mm-hmm. because no, that's like <laughs> mm-hmm. you start with smaller incremental uh, uh, topics and topics which are of interest for for everybody. And that's the case for for I think all, all all different dialogue processes. And then you start building trust, and and you have to be aware that it's a process, a long term process. It's gonna take years, and that you have to be there for the long haul. Now, you cannot wait for uh, uh, quick gains. Mm-hmm. No, you cannot hope for quick gains, but for long term smaller uh, results, mm-hmm. uh, which increase as as you progress in the process of building trust.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think being able to put the priority on ensuring that you do have that that trust and common ownership in the process as well may mean sometimes that the progress can be you know slower than you might wish could be going ahead in these kind of discussions, but it can ensure that it can continue in the long term, as you said, as well. So being able to not only have everyone feel that they're in a safe space, but also feel that they're in a space which is for their own benefit to be part of as well it is a place that they can be listened to it is a place where their interests or their needs or their challenges can be reflected and shared and there can be some kind of constructive you know common agenda whether it's common actions whether it's even just more space for for discussion and sharing of these these different perspectives and so on but so it's not seen as you know someone coming in from the outside and sharing these different you know this person said this. This organization said this, and then reporting back, but actually feeling that you're heading towards the same direction together, even if there are differences, and you know you're you're never going to be able to reach one one common position that that every member, especially when um, in the case of Northeast Asia, you know we have people from uh, many different countries and also with many different ideologies, many different backgrounds, and so in common together, but realizing that for the common the common goals, there are things that you can be doing to work together, and so having that long-term trust building and, you know, sharing the same direction that you're heading there and being willing to come together despite these differences or because of these differences in a way as well is really key.
2: And it's it's challenging because sometimes uh, I've been in rooms where people say, "What are we? What are we even doing here? No? Mm. Why, why? Why do we have to talk to these people? No? And they have to overcome their own resistance to even just be in the same room. Mm-hmm. No? And uh, and that's a departure point, point. No? and then you have mm-hmm. to start working up your way from that. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think yeah, the key is I'm trying to unpack because trust, and when you talk about trust, and you talk about peoples, for example, building trust among peoples, it is such an immense task. I think the key is uh, to focus on what is workable and unpack that. And so I think that's what um, Peaceboats and the GPAC Northeast Asia is, have done in the last several years, right, on um, creating that bridges in certain people's actors that they could reach, even mm-hmm. if there's no formal dialogue processes yet going on in among the big players, mm-hmm. but creating identifying what can you can reach and where you're effective at at least which is related to creating your own spaces I think there's value in being prepared because at least for me in as an outsider from Southeast Asia what I can say is the civil society in 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 the northeast Asia are at least more prepared if not they if they believed also the uh, that that belief or that idea that they'd have to wait. For the formal process to dialogue, but right now they they are more in a better position to respond to the fast changes that's happening in their region.
2: I, I just just a comment on what Mark was saying about uh, reaching out to sort of like the long the low hanging fruit or going through mm-hmm. through that. I think that's that's a good point, but at the same time there is a risk in that, and mm-hmm. is that we stay within our comfort zone and just work yeah. with those actors mm-hmm. that we are better able to reach or easily reachable and neglect those that are harder to mm-hmm. reach, which are usually the ones that should be engaged in this type of dialogue. So, mm-hmm. so while that's of course a valid point, then we have to keep in mind mm-hmm. who really, mm-hmm. not only who do we, ac- who we have access to easily, but who really needs to be in the table, and if, mm-hmm. even if they're hard to reach, how can we reach to them? Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have a specific example of that of a situation where you you sort you did or you didn't reach out to somebody that is potentially or was seen as um, maybe out of reach
2: um, I mean I'm, I'm curious actually to, to hear about uh, uh, um, uh, the experience of in, initiatives for international dialogue because mm. they do engage with those actors that uh, we see as hard to reach and they uh-huh. do reach to them
1: yeah I'm um, um, when it comes to reaching those, um, I think it's also about unpacking what exactly do you mean by you as the, the party who could not reach them. Mm-hmm. I think when we say you or we, it's not... You, you might be that your organization right now might be the, not be the, in the best position to reach that party because of historical distrust mm-hmm. as well. I mean, civil society themselves are all part of this dynamics. So in, in those cases, what you do is try to network with, and in, with other organizations that could insulate you in that, mm-hmm. um, in that process or find even that own, your own back channels to those parties. Mm. Um, that because it's uh, uh, for reasons that um, they might be acceptable to, to those parties and, and engaging with them. Um, so back-channeling doesn't happen just um, between those formal parties. It's actually very much applicable as well in how we do advocacies and engagement with certain actors that we want to 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 uh, influence. Mm. But how, how did you engage
2: with the... Uh uh, leadership of the more Islam- Islamic Liberation Front, for example, or the leadership of the National Liberation and the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, which
1: you do have access to. Yeah, um, Some of them are do not necessarily have um, quick links or easy links with, with IID, And I don't uh, claim to, we, we don't claim that IID did all that or have a primary role in all this. I think the effectiveness of IID is that um it worked together with all the other civil society actors building networks and and recognizing one's own limitations mm. and and in that case we've facilitated and helped facilitate with other networks um in building various networks mm-hmm. sharing information I mean, in 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 this field um and in every other field their uh, information and relationship are two of some of the infinite Resource. It's some, a resource that if you d- share and divide amongst each other, it doesn't mean that it's taken away from you. It's actually, it multiplies in, in that case. So um, I think um, that's what we meant by, uh, what I meant by in, in my answer about um, creating your own spaces. Mm. And in, in creating your, your own spaces, it's, it doesn't mean that you alienate yourself from or give up on the formal spaces it's just that right now given your own institutional capacity it might not be something that you don't have but some other actors some other partners might have
2: mm-hmm. and, and then i charge if you allow me i'm also curious because uh in northeast asia you know, you've mm-hmm. created this great space with uh, one of the actors which it's not easy at all, even for governments, to to, to to create this space. And yet we managed to do that. So I was wondering, how, how do you reach out? And you said you started from zero. How did you actually create that space? How did you reach out to, to uh, you know, actors in the uh, North Korea to start this
3: process? Sorry, I think one of the, the unique things that GPAC Northeast Asia has really felt has uh, had a, a large role in that is the fact that we do have a very local grassroots network in the region, but then we also do have GPAC working on the global or international levels as well, so being able to leverage having that really first-hand relationships, first-hand contacts through our local members and local organizations. Uh, For example, Peace Boat as an organization which had in the past had various exchanges with groups from North Korea, for example. And then, but also looking at, you know, GPAC with its linkages to the UN, its international recognition and so on as well has really meant that, although it took a lot of time, I think patience is really one of the other key words that's really needed to bring this kind of dialogue process into action. Being able to look at the different resources and relationships that you do have and see how that can be combined together. Um, I think one of the really important points to remember there as well is, of course, trust is the key, but there's also a lot of external factors, which were really very challenging, Um, even, you know, various laws in place in some of the participating countries, for example, which prohibited civil society or, you know, citizens from being in the same room as people with North Korea. We're still dealing with countries that don't have diplomatic relations with each other. So Japan, where I'm based, for example, doesn't have relations with North Korea. These kind of very practical um, things are still very much there as day-to-day hindrances of what we are trying to do. Um, But having the the patience and flexibility and the broader network of GPAC um, is one way to sort of get around that. Um, Within our our work, it did take several years before we were able to have regular participation from North Korea in our meetings. I think the fact also that we are a network that is working on regional issues in a very inclusive way, looking not only at the nuclear issue, for example, but also looking at territorial is- issues, history issues, peace education issues has really shown that it's a space where people can can come in together um, and hopefully, which meant that our partners could also see that there would be something useful for, or beneficial for them in participating as well, which I think was one of the things which led for, for our both South and North Korean participants to want to be involved in the long term. Hmm.
0: And you mentioned patience. So I'm curious, how do you deal with setbacks and incidents of violence? You know, because it's a very long, very long process. So how do you, yeah, how do you fit that in?
1: Um, I think uh, patience is something that uh, it's not. An attribute that is short term. It's mm-hmm. about um, framing it in the long term, mm-hmm. and also uh, celebrating your successes in the past years. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if we look at um, if if we look at uh, the context of Mindanao that we now have martial law uh, um, uh, in place in in that um, island group, we might say that we have failed. Mm-hmm. But that setback is just minimal compared to the kind of work that civil societies and communities have done and the impact that it has has done in in the past several decades. I mean, three decades, five decades ago, um, we don't have an enabling law that Mm. would address certain structural issues that um, uh, pushes um, different kinds of conflict. also, when it comes to uh, to, to setbacks, I think um, it uh, it's it's it, it you have to insulate yourself, your personal fatigue, with a collective collective sense of um, uh, shared responsibility of of care um so it's good to be in a network wherein you could check up on each other when times that you feel like you are not going to Mm -hmm. anything i think that's good with being part of a global network for example Mm -hmm. because it situates you in cases that you forget on on how to situate a certain context you look at for in in our case in in the case of the other peace process in that we are facing um in in the peace process with the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, I mean, at the start of the the presidency of President Duterte, that was a peace process that seemed to have huge strides. And then a year or so later, suddenly it's terminated. Mm -hmm. But we look at the example, for example, of Northeast Asia we in a year or so, two years ago, nobody yeah. would really have thought that yeah. um, it, um, there would be this huge um, uh, changes and developments yeah. and looking at how Peaceboat and Northeast Asia conducted itself and the civil society there conducted itself. They have that grit, really, to say that we need to be prepared. And they are yeah. m- m- more in a position to do that. And so we, mm-hmm. we take stock in, in, each, in the lessons of other partners.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, co- I think in that sense, it's, it's sometimes those moments when there are crises or there are these huge setbacks which reminds us even more of why it is that we're doing what we're Mm. doing and why dialogue is so necessary, because they are the moments when things can fall apart, when misinformation, when misunderstandings, these kind of things can exacerbate the issues so much more. Therefore, having that channel of communication and channel to to hear these different perspectives of of what's happening is, is all the more important, actually. I mean, we've had... For example, times when we are in the midst of our, our meetings of the Ulaanbaatar process at the same timing as uh, you know a nuclear test is conducted by the DPRK, for example. But actually having that space to be in the same room together and share the different perspectives of what, what led up to the, the critical mm-hmm. situation that's being faced and what, what can be done in order to move forward from there. Is something which which reminds or really highlights why that space is so crucial and and you know it's it's mm. of course it doesn't make it any easier but it really shows why it is that we're doing what we're doing and why it's crucial to keep going as well. Mm. Mm.
2: I think okay. that setbacks are part of any dialogue process, and I'm, as Mark can tell you. It feels like a roller coaster, you know? Sometimes your expectations are so high and you're, oh yeah, we're gonna make it, and then you're like, boom, something happens and Mm. it's over, and then, okay, now we start again. (laughs) And that is normal, you know? Coming from Colombia, for example, now I've had the opportunity in 1998, I was uh, working in the Colombian Congress uh, with the president of uh, Congress at the time, who was the lead negotiator of the peace process with mm-hmm. the FARC uh, guerrillas in, uh, in in 1998, a failed peace process, mm-hmm. you know, which there were lots of hopes. The government used a lot of, all of their political capital at the time, and it was a big disappointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that set up the stage, in a way, for uh, the success of the peace process that was started, uh, um, Ten years later mm. and that um and that um well ended up with signing the peace agreement with the with the farc mm. a couple of years ago so so setbacks are part of part of it are part of uh, part of life you now you take two steps forward one step uh, uh, behind mm. and you have to you have to know that that's going to happen that comes to the persistence factor that uh, uh, Mary was mentioning is simply that once you engage in a dialogue process, then you have to be there regardless of the setbacks, regardless of the progress. So if you know, if there is progress, you're happy, if there are setbacks. You're disappointed, but you're still there. And I think that's part of what uh, civil society has managed to do, is that regardless of the political context at the particular moment, uh, we managed to be there regardless of the interest, political interest or agenda of some donors at a uh, particular moment. And uh, Mary can Tell you, it's been struggle, for example, yeah. to to keep the interest on on the dialogue on Northeast Asia, and there is in, with skepticism, and then mm-hmm. there are some uh, um, there is you no know, good progress, and then everybody, you know, then the interest comes back, mm-hmm. but then there is setback, and then people retreat again. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, our value is that regardless of that, and we're always there. We have to because we have no choice. No, mm-hmm. we have to accompany the process, and and that's why we uh, work with with actors who have don't have that luxury of retreating because they yeah. have to be
0: hmm. there
2: and that's our value. Yeah. Uh, and that's what makes us different, I think. Hmm.
0: Hmm. I have an explosion of questions. Um, <laughs> first of all, so what you essentially what you're saying is the important thing is to remain engaged. Yes. Um, where, but where do you draw the line uh, in who you choose to engage with and who you don't? Uh, in terms of the financial and political consequences that might ensue. I mean, I've heard things about uh, organizations being prosecuted for dealing with the FARC or Mm. many other organizations. Uh, In my context, uh, Israel, Palestine, Hamas and the IDF. I mean, it depends whose eyes you're viewing
3: it through. So, yeah, where do you draw the line and how hard is it? Kind of, yeah, yeah, I think that's always a challenge. I mean, in, in Northeast Asia, it's not necessarily an active armed conflict. So in that sense, it, it is perhaps somewhat different dynamics. But at the same time, um, there are, of course, many donors, many governments and so on that, um, you know, are not willing to have any support with anything that has participation from North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've found that has it has, um to be very frank, very serious financial implications. It mm-hmm. means that a lot of our process is... You know, self-funded people pay their own way to get there. People do their own fundraising in very, very, very small, small pockets, small ways to somehow uh, keep it mm-hmm. keep it afloat. But we've also found that because there is such a need and a willingness and an ownership from the participation the participants in the process, that we have somehow been able to, to keep doing that. So it was at least within the context of Northeast Asia, our our real main principle is to make sure that. It keeps going. That whoever wants to be there can be there. That it is inclusive. That we're not, you know, drawing lines in terms of who are the people to be listened to and who are the people that we should be shutting out. Mm. Um, which has meant, of course, it's, it's very challenging in some ways. But at the same time, that's if we are really going to look at what is behind the conflict, which is going now, and how we can actually have a true resolution for this, we see that we need to have the participation of all of all of the members of, of the region which That's is very much our guiding true. principle there
0: mm-hmm.
3: Do you have anything to add Mark?
1: Yeah um, when it comes to where do you draw the line I think uh, the first the question before that is to also have a nuance on who you are dealing with for example mm-hmm. when we talk about um, the actor in the peace process with the More Islamic Liberation Front. The More Islamic Liberation Front isn't just the leadership of the MLF or the armed group. There are multiple organizations that have, are supportive or have links with them. Mm. So um, in, in this case, there is a gradient, uh, an entire universe of, 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 of uh, gradients that you could you could use and employ basically. And there's multiple uh, um, actors as well that you could you could go to. So um, and and I'm just using the MLF as 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 um, as an example. Mm-hmm. It could be also the military. Mm-hmm. So the military itself could isn't a monolithic uh, um, actor. Mm-hmm. So you choose which specific actors basically you could uh, partner with, and and it's not like and the I think the key is. Um, not necessarily drawing a lot, but being transparent to them that mm-hmm. in um, we always mm-hmm. say this in IID that we are we are independent, but we are not neutral. We are upfront with what is at the basis of our mm-hmm. engagement or ac- accompaniment. Yeah. Then, if if our constituency is, for example, indigenous peoples, um, inclusive peace process, um, human rights, then the, um, we are transparent with them. Yeah. It doesn't mean that we we cannot. Um, dialogue with with um, certain parties within, right? and and there's again the nuance that it's not the same shades of of, of mm-hmm. color for for everyone that is affiliated with a certain um, them that yeah. concept of them. yeah,
3: yeah. I think there is often a misunderstanding that being engaged with someone means that you're automatically affiliating affiliating yourself with all all of their views and sharing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. speaking on behalf of them or representing them. Whereas it is really just about being engaging and having a conversation, which is the first way to actually start to challenge some of those views or mm-hmm. positions that they might have as well. So there is there is often this this impression or uh, way that engagement is perceived as is a way of justifying what a certain party is doing, where it as it really is the first step to unpacking the different the different perspectives and working through them together. Yeah,
2: I think that's that's a, that's a good point because one trend that we are seeing is the uh, criminalization of peace building work in mm. a way you know, yeah. just just because we're trying to create these spaces and to bring people from different parts of the divide to engage with some of the hard to reach, where yeah. usually you know, then then it's very easy to label you as mm. you know, traitor or. You know, sponsoring uh, mm-hmm. uh, subversive groups or t- terrorists even, you know, yeah. and then once you get that label, then everything can be yeah. every- justifiable against you. And mm-hmm. and that's, I think, a very big risk And because that is something that's being more and more used by mm-hmm. by, by uh, those who want to discredit yeah. uh, organizations and this type of work. You know, and mm-hmm. that's that's just limiting the spaces for, for organizations like ours to do their work, uh, and making it uh, making it more more difficult. And I yeah. think that's a you know, dangerous route to go because it mm. increases polarization increases the us versus them. It creates no mm. spaces for people who are more middle of the road who want to see uh, find common ground into discussions. And and uh, well, I mean, mm. I'm sure each one of us, you included in your own context, can relate to
0: that. Yeah, know? absolutely. absolutely. Uh, in terms of the kind of underlying logic of okay, the most important thing is to remain engaged. Is the same log- logic true of a peace deal? In that, is there what? Mm-hmm. Is there a right peace deal, a wrong peace deal? I don't know if I mean it's
2: right or wrong peace deal. Like it's a process, mm-hmm. so that's why they call peace processes. So there are. The, it's 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 an attempt to reconcile positions or so for some people they will feel they would they might feel not comfortable with mm. certain agreements some others might feel more reflected in that it's it's hard to say I think the important thing is to keep the, the dialogue going in a way but at the same time you find some context in which and I understand which you see well actually one of the parties is just really has no Will to dialogue and might seem like it's just instrumentalizing the, the dialogue mm. to get other. So, it's, so there is a fine line that has to be walked there between mm-hmm. really trying to engage, create those spaces for dialogue, uh, and at the other hand, see if there is really, you no, know, if if this goodwill is being uh, instrumentalized uh, by one of the parties, uh, and, and and then you might want to rethink your strategy. Always thinking that you want to engage, but say, okay, maybe maybe we have to. Or look for another venue or something if, if, if that is the case because it might hurt the dialogue processes It might hurt you mm. as an organization and your credibility mm. uh, Doesn't mean that you don't know continue mm. with uh, your idea of engaging but simply rethink your strategy on how to do it more effectively mm. Yeah, on this issue of a correct mm. and
1: wrong piece deal um, um, Just an example for example um, in, in the case of the Bangsamoro uh, 30 40 years ago the mm-hmm. possession of the majority of the bangsamoro especially the actors that um, have that political clout within the bangsamoro the uh, moro nationalist liberation front and the moro islamic liberation front their possession back then sev- several decades ago was secession mm. and then right now it's um, and right now, their position is that it's non-secession. They, at least for the MILF, for for their case, they can imagine right to self-determination within the context of the uh, of the Philippine states. Um, in in the case of, of IID, as an accompanier, the principle that we subscribe to is right to self-determination. But again, if in that right to self-determination, that the meanings that end of of that changes as well um, um uh from time to time and i think the important thing that darinel's uh, said is it's a process and part of the process our task is to accompany that process so to ensure that it's as inclusive mm-hmm. and as representative as possible um when in several years back we, it's not in our position to tell the the partners that your right to self your meaning of right to self-determination, which is secession, is wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that case, they might be right because back then the context of the Philippine state does this allows the legal structure, the economic structure, the political structure does not allow a a a realization of that right to self-determination. Mm-hmm. But the Philippine state in the several years as well also changed, and, and now. The, the the Bangsamoro actors also saw that and now they are, are, were able to reimagine that our, our right to self-determination can now happen and can now exist within the framework of the Philippine state which goes to show that peace building is also beyond just the formal talks and mediation mm-hmm. and it's historical mm-hmm. so it means that some things, material conditions change in 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 how the Philippine states, for example, deal with their with the um, practice of um, the religion of cultural rights, what um, of of the Bangsamoro people, the creation of spaces for them to be represented in economic and political life. So there was also a change in the position of the MILF and the MNLF, not. And it wasn't negotiated directly through verbal. Mm. It's negotiated historical. It's changed. It's because mm. there was a transformation, basically, of how things and how possessions, how structures were. Mm. So sometimes you need you need to step back and look at um, a mediation process from from that perspective. Mm. I think it's it's
2: important when you're looking into this to to do a. An analysis of the actors that you're dealing with. No, 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 we have different tools to do that. One, one, one uses this image of, a, of an onion. You no, know, to look at the different capes of what an actor position really is. And uh, you no, know, the first layer saying that the position and the position meaning this is what you say. You no, know, what mm. you say is not necessarily what you think or what you need. You no, know, but it's just what you say. And somebody actually rather than an onion said, well, we should make it a coconut. Somebody from uh, <laughs> one of our members explaining this is like, because it's so hard to crack that position. <laughs> Even if it's not so hard to crack, the rather than an onion is like a coconut, <laughs> you know, the, the, the official position. Mm. And, but then you move, after you move from that, then you go into, okay, what do they really want? Not what is really their position, what they really want. And what they really want is different from what they really need. You no, know? mm-hmm. and then when you go into the needs, you know, so this one thing is the interest. Okay, my real interest is this, my position is this, but my interest is this. But my real need is is this. And then it's very hard to do that analysis and to, to think about okay, what is the real need? Because the need is often what is really non negotiable. Mm-hmm. The other thing you can you can you can manage, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a bit from you know, what Mark was saying, how oh suddenly, you know, the group talks about self determination, but then they are willing to uh, compromise for a solution that <clears throat> but that still satisfies their needs their perceived needs and that's that's I think the importance of doing this analysis and sometimes we sometimes we we, we stay in the dialogue with the positions uh, and and don't go into the other layers of analysis, which are, and that that's something like you know, it's a process and they will emerge as part of a process and they may take time to emerge, but we have to be aware of that. You know?
0: mm. A more personal question, um, maybe related to the layers of an onion. Uh, how do you balance your own beliefs with the more kind of diplomatic demands of a dialogue process, if you care to share, if not, that's... That's okay too.
3: I think part of it is, and again, it, it comes back to the sum of the same keywords we keep sharing, but the dialogue process is a way to have enough trust that you can share your personal mm. beliefs within uh, both within the official process, but also in the other conversations that are always happening mm. on the sidelines, which are often the more useful and the more meaningful conversations as well, rather than what's actually being said, mm. you know, in the meeting rooms. And it's only once you reach that kind of point that you can start to actually go beyond those layers, go beyond those positions, and, and start to share both both your personal thoughts, but also, you know, how how this is being seen by by other parties. You know, how this is being seen internationally especially when you take you know parties that are being you know vilified internationally for example being able to share very frankly Mm -hmm. um, with them about these kind of things and what that means to you but also what it means to the overall work as well I think is only something that can can -hmm. be done once you're in that space together Mm -hmm. so well I I completely recognize that having that kind of a conversation may go against some principles that other people have especially if they're coming not necessarily from a a peace building perspective but Mm -hmm. from you know, whether you're looking more specifically on human rights or specifically on these kind of issues. But I think that what's fundamentally beneath it all for me is that unless you have that kind of communication and mm-hmm. that kind of space, then there is no way that you will be able to actually share some of these different conflicting issues, share some of these really difficult conversations mm-hmm. that need to be actually addressed if there is going to be any, any hope of, of peace in the future.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm. I think, <clears throat> you know, peace is, in essence... A political process. You now, when you think about building peace, you're thinking about, you know, the political side of political arrangements, and uh, peace is uh, and politics is. Uh, somebody said it's the art of what it's possible. Mm-hmm. So you also have to be pragmatic sometimes in, in in a way, knowing knowing where you want to go by knowing that that dot in the horizon where you want to reach, you have to take baby steps. No, and knowing that no, it's baby step, it might not seem as much for some people, but 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 it is in a way, a significant progress. So you have to reconcile and, and also sometimes be uh, be pragmatic uh, um, and uh, be uh, an idealistic, pragmatic mm. person, you know? So you're having mm. your ideal mm. there, mm. moving towards that, but but knowing that you have to uh, act within the realm of what is possible in a particular context and in a particular moment.
1: Mm. In my case, I only subscribe, I think I'm Gram Chan on, on this case. Um, in a, in a sense that I apply and a lot of, of peace builders who have backgrounds in organizing and movement building in the Philippines subscribe to the concept that of pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is putting into con- uh, s- um, events and mediation and conflict you, uh, situating it in in a historical point of view where in it's it's all part of, of the process, and um, therefore, if we should situate it that way, because if you say that it's you have to give up now, and then you, it's it's a it's a um, self-actualizing prophecy, and in the case of of beliefs, beliefs are you realize it as well in the context of history. You cannot assert it as well, right? That convince people. On one sitting that they need to do this and even if you're so angry and you feel deeply about it right now if that's not the right time it's it's not the right uh, mode or to to achieve that then um, you'd have to sit it how do you realize that in, in a more um, systematic way in a way that considers that long-term process
0: mm-hmm. Uh, I think I have one more question to sort of wrap up. Um, what are some of the arguments made against you engaging different groups and how do you make the argument for peaceful dialogue?
3: I think we could speak for hours. Yeah. Those <laughs> <ones>. <laughs> they tend to be the ones that you hear every day on the media, mm. you know, that you hear that are, are the, the reasons given by governments for not having discussions with certain mm. parties that are being given you know, for as the justification for putting more sanctions in place that are really what, especially, I mean, this is in the case of Northeast Asia and when we're looking at the Korean Peninsula situation, Hmm. you know, that they can't be trusted, that there's no way that you can have a real conversation with them, that they're only, you know, that the partners that we're working with, you know, people say there's no way that they're actually representing themselves individually, they're Hmm. only being controlled by the government, these kind of. But these are very much the, the only voices that you ever hear, and the only information that you ever hear is from very limited perspectives, limited uh, sources and so on as well. So I think it's just really important to make sure that we can be consistent about speaking up and showing that there are other ways to do this, that there are other perspectives, that there is a, a reason for continuing these conversations, that there is a way to actually have, I mean, even, even just to be able to say that there are human beings on the other side hmm. of... What we see in the media, and to show that this is an issue which is really affecting people on a day-to-day basis, and not only in the ways that we see in, you know, the mainstream media, but also in from the other the other sides, you know, shall we say, rather than not to put everybody on different sides yeah. as such, but just to be able to show that human face, I think, is mm. in itself a huge step towards actually actually making some kind of progress and. Highlighting the fact that there there should be more dialogue and there should be this kind of space permitted that can continue into support an environment on on the governmental level as well mm-hmm. Rather than you know just leading things to certain leaders with their their fingers on the nuclear nuclear weapon buttons and these <laughs> sort of things as well Which is not something that anybody would want I think no matter what political um, belief or background they come from mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, in, in our context um, there, there are two. One is similar to Mary's in Northeast Asia's case where in um, dealing with actors that are perceived to be tagged as terrorists, mm. um, militants, violent groups, etc., subversive groups, then the the arguments are that it's not effective to talk with them. But there's also a unique thing for um, that, that different from uh, the case of Northeast Asia we're in. When you deal with actors that are not among the two Parties and and you you get that response from both parties, wherein you are criticized as if you try to engage with wider actors, you are to- told as um, you are disruptive, you have your own agenda, etc. But I think um, you uh, ultimately it's it number one. It's it's also about for the case of um, dealing with inclusivity then just have to be true to and transparent about why you do it. Um, And and your mandate and and the principles that you stand on is a principle that um, peace process should be inclusive. On the case of um, the other side, which is the continuance of a dialogue, um, some things are, uh, are, not explained in a verbal way, but um, these are explained in a way that manifests itself by um, ac- action or the effectiveness of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And some people, and some, and even the public in, in the Philippines, for example, it, they they don't believe certain uh, the di- on the uh, with the dialogue process. But that's already in the in cases where in uh, the the dialogue is already failing. Mm-hmm. But right. Uh, Two years ago, in the context of the peace process with the MILF, there was the the Mamasapano um, incident wherein suddenly the public outcry or the public perception suddenly shifted. But now we are two years um, in in the process. Then we have the Bangsamoro Basic Law, which was frustrated two years ago, which was supposed to be passed two years ago if not for that incident. So in this case, as you always refer back to, to mm-hmm. how... Things unfold and, put, and and show them that you know what if we had listened to you if if this was a track that we 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 took if we said that it's all out to our then we wouldn't have reached this position mm-hmm. or, or, or this or this point so it's always trying to to flag to the, your public um, those in uh, points in history in the past years that says said that portrays that dialogue is effective.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think, I think you know in this context of uh, we, first we have to be aware that this context are actually highly polarized mm-hmm. you know, and, then yeah. the, and then there is in this highly polarized context, there is a construction of your yes. of the other mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and you start constructing and giving some uh, attributes to the other mm-hmm. uh, that usually are that make it very difficult for anyone to engage with the other because how are you going to engage mm-hmm. with this? Look at you know, mm-hmm. in the best case scenario, they are a caricature. Yeah. In the worst case scenario, or they're you know James Bond villain. Now, yeah. How are you going to engage mm. with this? Oh, I guess, look at this. it's completely unreasonable, and hence, mm-hmm. if you try to talk to them, you're also being unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And so, it's very easy to place you the black or white
0: yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: Uh, spectrum. So that is something that has to be uh, overcome. But then, funny enough, when. Start engaging, then then this James Bond villain becomes less of a villain, and then this unreasonable. Oh, maybe it's not so unreasonable. Oh, maybe there is a point there, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and then and then there is ground for 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 dialogue. You know, mm-hmm. But but to reach that point is so difficult because you have mm-hmm. to overcome all this construction that has been mm-hmm. made. Uh, and, and and that gets thrown at you to ridiculeize your work or to yeah. mm-hmm. um, say in the best case scenario you simply to say they're skeptical and you will not mm-hmm. reach anything mm-hmm. so you're good we know your good intention but yeah it, this will not go anywhere
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, and again you, know, you have to, be aware that that is going to happen. Mm. And if you are committed to the dialogue, uh, just deal with that and remain engaged and and, and mm. seek, continue seeking uh, seeking spaces for that. And I think what Mary was saying about uh, uh, humanizing mm. the other, mm. because sometimes we just tend to think again, like, uh, no, we have this construction, we don't think that they have
3: mm.
2: same concerns that, that, that we have, no? And one of the uh, things that I have uh, really gain from engaging or supporting uh, or uh, some of the processes that, you know, have been happening in Northeast Asia or engaging with some of the people that IID talks to or in the Colombian context or in some other context is that at the end of the day, we talk about our kids, our, you know, how we are mm-hmm. sending them to school. We have the same worries. We have the same yeah. concerns. Mm-hmm. We have, in essence... The concerns that everybody has, uh, and 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 that worries us as, uh, as mm-hmm. individuals, you no. Know? Mm-hmm. And then it's and then once you reach that point, then you realize it's like, well, then that's when real trust starts to be built because we <laughs> yeah. say, well, we're in the same world, We just have some disagreements, but let's no. In essence, we have same concerns and worries, mm-hmm. no. And and uh, it's just that to reach that point, it takes a long time, long, yeah. long, long time, and we have to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: Great. And that point is absolutely in reach. So it's been a pleasure hearing from all of you. Thank you for joining me. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank, Thank, Thank you. Thank you.